Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to CBS News Roundup ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, kids go back to school amid searing heat across the nation. It's really hot. It's going to feel like 100 degrees. The nation prepares to mark 22 years since the deadly September 11th terror attacks. It doesn't get any easier, and it doesn't. the pain does not go away. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, a discussion about libraries and book bans. I've never known a book to hurt a child. I'm Allison Keyes in Washington. Millions of Americans spent this week under excessive heat warnings, especially in the Southwest, where triple-digit temperatures are expected through the weekend. All this as kids in many cities headed back to school. We began our team coverage with CBS's Jared Hill. Students in the nation's largest school district, New York City, braved the sweltering September sun on the first day back. It's really hot. Same in Boston, where, like New York, officials have spent millions adding air conditioners to most schools. Inside the majority of our schools, it is very cool and comfortable. But in several states, schools without adequate AC canceled class or sent students home early to beat the heat. I'm happy with the decision. I thought it was way too hot. We all went to school when we were younger, whether it was snow, heat. We all survived. In Tarrant County, Texas, the heat has been blamed for at least 14 deaths in the past two months. Meals on Wheels there is now delivering food and free AC units to vulnerable seniors. A lot of these these units that we put in are also heaters. Come winter months, uh, they'll be taken care of as well. The so-called dog days of summer are not just buckling, they are biting. The United Nations says this summer has been the hottest on record, and experts say next year could be worse. As long as um, countries continue to emit greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, we're going to continue to heat up. The warming waters in the Atlantic Ocean are giving more strength to Hurricane Lee, now churning hundreds of miles away from the East Coast. Jared Hill, CBS News. Health experts warn that children are at risk amid soaring temperatures. This September scorcher is forcing schools around the country to dismiss early or close to give students a break from sweltering classrooms. That's welcome news for this Baltimore family. They had an early release from school, so we said, okay, maybe we should come to swim. I'm really excited to go swimming. Making sure kids stay cool is extremely important. The signs of heat exhaustion in children may be more subtle. That's because they don't regulate their body temperatures as efficiently as adults, and children may not recognize the effects of the heat, according to CBS News medical contributor Dr. Celine Gounder. What should adults be looking out for? So some of the signs of heat exhaustion would be a temperature above 105, sometimes even, but having a fever when they're not otherwise sick, having this very fast 
breathing or heart rate, low blood pressure, which can manifest as dizziness or confusion. Dr. Gounder says extreme heat can also affect kidney, liver, and respiratory function, and it can impair learning, cognition, and mental health. We have seen that kids tend to be more irritable, have more difficulty sleeping. They can even sometimes develop depression or anxiety related to these heat exposures, and it may not be an obvious connection to make, uh, but if you do notice some of those uh, symptoms, it's something to be aware of and think about. It's critical that children get plenty of hydration, seek shade when they can, and spend time in the air conditioning when possible. Michael George, CBS News, New York. Older adults can also have trouble in extreme heat. Doctors stress keeping the elderly cool and safe when temps are soaring is critical to avoid heat-related illnesses. Older adults may not be able to notice the heat and adapt to it, according to geriatric specialists at Rush University Medical Center. We sweat less as we age, which slows the ability to cool down, and we become less sensitive to thirst, so we can already be dehydrated by the time we're thirsty. Common conditions in the elderly can make it harder to adjust to rising temperatures. Patients with diabetes, kidney disease, dementia, and depression can experience dehydration more easily. Some medications also make it harder to stay hydrated. On these hot days, older adults should keep water by their side. Avoid drinks with caffeine, sugar, or alcohol. Set a timer to remind to drink water and keep a close eye on the temps inside and outside to try to keep your home between 68 and 78 degrees. If you have older loved ones or neighbors, be sure to check on them. Weakness and confusion are symptoms of heat exhaustion. Haley Ott, CBS News, New York. The scorching weather isn't fun for workers either. CBS's Omar Villafranca in Dallas. At this chocolate factory outside of Dallas. Everything is to protect from the heat in some way. Melting merchandise is a major concern. Chocolate is temperamental, even in the best weather. But in 100 degree weather, it is nearly impossible. It also keeps the cold in. Employees at Kate Weiser Chocolate said they experimented for weeks using special ice packs to find the best way to ship their sweet treats during a steamy summer. Even if we do everything right, something could still melt, and that's loss that we have to then resend to the customer. Across Dallas-Fort Worth, businesses are boiling as they try to serve customers in the triple-digit temps. There's a jump between the 90s and the 100s, and you get above 100, and there's you can feel it. Including the Ivy Tavern, which uses fans and water misters to keep its patio space cool. It's just something as simple as having the air moving. Can that make a difference in the amount of people who come knowing you have fans? Oh, most definitely. If the fans aren't on and people are out here, they will complain. A couple of states over, Arizona's capital is on track to set a new record with 54 days at or above 110 degrees. When we fight, we win! Some workers say as the mercury is rising, employees can't keep up. Sometimes I don't get water when I should, so I will start feeling dizzy. Cecilia Ortiz said she's had symptoms of heat exhaustion at her job, helping passengers with disabilities board and deplane flights. It's a lot of physical stuff, you know, getting our passengers up to their gate and then having to make it to our next assignment and then wait down on that jet bridge. All we can do is hope that it's not hot down there because we're already in motion and sweating. Maricopa County recorded 194 heat-related deaths so far this year. Now, here in Texas, all eyes will be on the state's power grid. They've been asking customers to conserve power during the hottest part of the day to avoid outages, but that's gonna be a challenge since temperatures are expected to reach 107, 108 
here in Dallas. If you have an iPhone or iPad, there's a new security fix you need to install right away. CBS's Ian Schur. This is the latest in an escalating effort by hackers to get into our devices and tech companies to keep their promises our devices are secure and reliable. New AAA data finds that if kids up to age 10 aren't in car seats, it can be deadly. CBS's Chris Van Cleve. AAA and car seat maker Chico released these findings that noticed a sharp decrease in car seat use after the age of seven. And that is a contributing factor, according to this study. 38% of kids from ages seven to 10 who died in crashes were not in car seats. About a quarter of the deaths of kids from newborn to three were also not restrained. Nearly 2,800 were killed in car crashes between 2017 and 2021. Coming up, remembering September 11th. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keys. We're looking ahead now to Monday and marking 22 years since the September 11th terror attacks that killed nearly 3,000 people. The two planes that hit the World Trade Center in New York City as people watched in horror. Oh, my God! Oh, no! I saw the plane hit the building. The attack on the Pentagon. and the people who fought the terrorists who had taken over Flight 93 that crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania instead of hitting the U.S. Capitol. Todd M. Beamer. The world as we know it changed and our hearts are still broken. Monica Eichen lost her husband Michael on that terrible day at the World Trade Center. They had been married less than a year and still none of his remains have been found. Friday, she was celebrating what would have been his 59th birthday. We asked how she's doing. You know, the, the fact is that it's hard to believe it. So it's still somewhat surreal that that really happened to me. And this is my story. 22 years later, it actually it's harder every year. It gets worse. Last year was really, really hard for me. Um, I'm watching, you know, people who are no longer with us. I'm seeing the next generation who really never got to meet their loved ones. You know, people are dying, having babies. Those who are sick are dying from being first responders down there. And I think it just every year it gets harder. We just lost a good uh, family friend um, who Bruce to sell. And, you know, that was really hard. He's the father of uh, my friend Nicole, who lost her husband that day. And I think it's just, you know, as the years go on, you know, it just gets more complicated because you just it's 
just can't believe it's happening. And I can't believe Michael would have been 59 today. And what would our life have been like um, if he was still with me? Would we have had two children? You're always having that thing in your mind going, we were happily married. And would we be married today? And would we be celebrating 59 together? And, you know, like all those thoughts come in your mind. And I always think like, would I have had two children or three children with him? And, you know, he's missing out, but I feel like he's a, even though he's not the father of my two girls, I feel that he's a part of them. It's, they're a part of me. So anything I do, they think about him as well, even though they don't know him, but in spirit, they know him and in pictures and the, you know, the memories, which are, they help sustain me. And having a beautiful world-class memorial museum actually is key too. It's really having that place to go is so powerful and important. And I thank God every day for that beautiful place that I can go and sit there and meet friends to celebrate and honor his life that he's 59 and drink his Merlot, which I didn't like because it stains my teeth, but I'll drink it for him. We always bring the bottle down and we celebrate. And, you know, that's just, it's a blessing to be able to do that. That's all I can say because I have no remains. So it's hard. I've got to ask you, Monica, President Biden is not coming to ground zero this year for September 11th. He's going to be in Alaska. What, what do you think about that? To be honest with you, I, as I told some other family members who are a little upset about that, I said, I, you know, the most important thing is that we're there. Does it really matter if he's there or not? If he doesn't do what he needs to do, he's sending um, the vice president, you know, down and she'll be there uh, representing him and his you know, wife. And, you know, I guess that's I guess that's all we need. Right. I don't I don't know. I just feel like I think the most important thing is that we're there and we're still here because some of us are not here anymore. So I think us being there is important, the families and, you know, those who care about the loved ones we lost. And if you want to be there, you be there. If you don't want to be there, I'm not going to hold it against you because, you know, everybody knows the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. And I think, you know, you have to pay your respects, right? And if you don't want to do that, then you have other priorities, then that's very telling. Let's put it that way. Just one more briefly, Monica, what do you think, what do you want people to remember on September 11th this year? I think it's important that we never forget and always keep the memory of our loved ones alive because it's getting harder. And, uh, you know, with death and dying and life and, you know, some people are having babies now and they'll never know their grandfather or grandmother or aunts or uncles or cousins. And I think the importance is for the next generation to understand the significance of what happened that day and the, the power behind it and what happened after 9-11 and the, the resilience and how we all came together and the spirit of you know grief and mourning we were able to um rally together and help each other and you know survive this nightmare and i you know i still feel that i can't believe i'm actually this is my story still you know that i'm here telling it and that we're still talking about it, but we have to, we have to keep telling people the importance of it. And it doesn't get any easier and it doesn't, the pain does not go away. And we don't move on. We move into the life we were chosen. We didn't choose this life. This life chose us. These evil people did this to our loved ones. We didn't expect that to happen. You know, when you're happily married for 11 months, you're not thinking about someone getting killed at work, but this is our new reality. And that's the other thing we have to remember. We can't we have a new reality. This is not happening just here. It's happening everywhere that you can't go to church. You can't go to a synagogue. You, have to, you can't go to a mall. You can't, you're in school. I mean, the, the fear is just, we have to keep you know, understanding that this is our new reality and we have to be vigilant and 
you know, understanding that this could happen anywhere to anyone. That's Monica Eichen, who poured her grief into founding the nonprofit September's Mission Foundation and fought to secure land on the World Trade Center site for what is now the National September 11th Memorial and Museum. On Friday, the Pentagon held the first of two services commemorating that day to allow staffers who were working during the terrorist plane attack on the building to attend a memorial service. Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks was there when 184 people were killed that day. As someone who remembers vividly the course of my own steps right here at the Pentagon that day, I can tell you sharing these reflections remains hard. Yet as the years since September 11th have increased, so too does the importance of telling our stories. Because even as many of us have personal memories of what happened that day, an increasing share of Americans don't. The traditional Pentagon ceremony for loved ones of those killed will be held on Monday. In Shanksville, the Flight 93 National Memorial will honor the 40 passengers and crew members with the reading of their names, the bells of remembrance, and a private wreath laying for family members. President Biden will not attend any of the services in New York City, Virginia, or Pennsylvania, and is scheduled to stop in Alaska instead for September 11th observance in Anchorage. CBS's Ed O'Keefe explains that Mr. Biden is in India for the G20 summit. The president is set to meet with the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. This whole trip is designed to put much more focus here on Asia amid concerns about China's growing dominance. And that's also why he's scheduled to visit Vietnam on Sunday. Vice President Kamala Harris and her husband will be at the 9-11 ceremonies in New York Monday. And First Lady Jill Biden will be at the Pentagon. Coming up, Mexico and abortion. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Fentanyl kills more than 70,000 people in the U.S. every year. CBS News got an exclusive look at the secret government bunker where U.S. Customs and Border Protection screens mail and packages for the deadly drug being shipped into the nation. Correspondent Nicole Skanga. In a vault in Southern California, barricaded behind door after door, tens of millions of dollars of narcotics. And so behind these cages here, that's where the fentanyl, this is where the fentanyl is. Stacks of fentanyl and its building blocks known as chemical precursors seized by U.S. Customs and Border Protection. There's um, pills, um, there's just basically loose powder. This is the most secure area of the entire secret U.S. government bunker behind me, nearly 8,500 pounds of fentanyl and its precursors. Nearly all of this will be destroyed soon. Spoils of Operation Artemis, the Department of Homeland Security's latest mission to uproot the fentanyl supply chain. More than half of the chemical precursors intercepted have been seized at this warehouse near the Los Angeles airport. To the average American, this might look like a Home Depot but it's a lot more sophisticated than that. It's the first in the nation. It's a centralized examination station for air cargo. But acting commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, Troy Miller, also has another name for it. This literally is ground zero for our fight against fentanyl precursors. Synthetic opioids now kill roughly 70,000 people annually, including a growing number of minors, like 15-year-old Melanie Ramos, whose aunt says she dreamed of one day joining the Army. Even at the age of 15, 
she was determined to enlist. Her body found lifeless in her L.A. high school bathroom last year. Today we're here, tomorrow we're not. And for people to understand that it could be you sitting here giving your story. Roughly 90% of the nation's fentanyl pills and powder are smuggled over the U.S.-Mexico border. So you got aniline, which is a fentanyl precursor. But Miller says intercepting the chemical precursors, most originating from China and flooding U.S. cities and transit hubs, means modernizing screening of the nation's air cargo and mail. Right now, you don't have the information you need to track these precursors. We do not. Miller says U.S. trade law has seen no major updates since he first joined the agency 30 years ago. 50 times more potent than heroin, fentanyl is so lethal. CBP officer Andrew Chavez keeps the overdose reversal drug Narcan on his belt at this mail processing facility. There's always a risk that, that our officers will come in contact with it. And authorities say the fight against fentanyl will take more than officers in uniform. Do you feel we can enforce our way out of this problem? Absolutely not. You know, we certainly have a, we certainly have a demand issue. We're going to do our part, certainly, to uh, keep this poison out of the country. But, you know, it, this is a societal issue that we all need to tackle together. I'm Nicole Skanga in Los Angeles. There's a disturbing new study out about cancer and people 50 and younger. Cases globally have shot up by nearly 80% in the past 30 years. CBS's Janet Chamlian. Queen Stewart is a lawyer and mom of two who learned she had breast cancer at 35, finding the lump herself too young for insurance-paid screenings. When you were diagnosed, what did you think? I just cried. <laughs> um, and I just worried so much about whether I would be here for my girls. Cancer is surging in people under 50, according to a new study involving more than 200 countries, increasing 79% over an almost 30-year period. The most cases and deaths coming from breast cancer. Prostate and trachea, or windpipe cancers, had the fastest increases. Those numbers are remarkable. What are the ramifications for society of younger people getting cancer? I think it's important for younger individuals uh, who meet screening criteria to consider uh, and, and pursue screening uh, at age-appropriate times. But why is it happening? Researchers say genetics is a factor, but the study cites poor diets, alcohol and tobacco use, physical inactivity, and obesity. What steps can people take to reduce their cancer risk? Look uh, at the, the importance of screening. There's breast cancer, colorectal cancer, cervix cancer. In the U.S., the recommended age to start colon cancer screening was recently lowered from 50 to 45, and breast cancer from 50 to 40. Stewart had a double mastectomy, chemotherapy, and radiation. She's in remission and says she has a new lease on life. It had me create a sense of urgency in my life to live now, to find joy. Researchers specifically mentioned dietary factors, too much sodium, too much red meat, as contributors to these cancer cases, stressing how much of a role what we eat plays in our overall health. Janet Shamley in CBS News, Houston. That 70s show actor Danny Masterson was sentenced to 30 years to life in prison for drugging and raping two women two decades ago while he was starring in the hit sitcom. 
CBS's Carter Evans reports both women delivered powerful statements directly to the actor before he learned his fate. They got their justice. It's a long time coming. It took two decades for Danny Masterson to be found guilty of rape. The actor, best known for his role in That 70s Show, had been convicted in May of raping two women back in 2003, a jury deadlocked on a third count. Masterson and both victims were members of the Church of Scientology. There were allegations the reason it took so long was that the church prevented the victims from reporting the assaults. The women claimed once they came forward, they were harassed and threatened by the church. Just because it's a delayed reporting, even if it's been 20 years, it still matters. A crime still happened and somebody needs to be held accountable. His victims testified just prior to the sentencing, calling Masterson a true coward and a heartless monster. You relish in hurting women. It's your addiction. Another saying, every time I think I'm okay, that rape comes back to me. I've gotten to know the victims in this case. They're strong. They were committed to making sure that justice gets served. And today they got it. The Church of Scientology denies allegations that it harassed the victims or prevented them from reporting the assaults. Masterson's attorneys plan to appeal the verdict. But for now, he's not eligible for parole until he's 77 years old. Carter Evans, CBS News, Los Angeles. Now to Mexico, where the Supreme Court has voted to decriminalize abortion in the predominantly Catholic nation. In a unanimous decision, Mexico's highest court said the legal system that penalizes abortion was unconstitutional. The decision means women across Mexico will have access to abortion without the fear of being arrested. It also means government hospitals cannot refuse to perform abortions. The decision was immediately hailed by Mexican groups fighting for reproductive rights. Adrian Bard, CBS News, Mexico City. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keys segment, does banning books hurt kids? That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keys segment, where every week we discuss issues including income inequality. The American Library Association promotes libraries and fights censorship and book bans. Now there's a nationwide movement against the nonprofit, as state libraries in Montana, Missouri, and Texas say they are leaving the ALA, and conservative lawmakers in at least nine other states, including Wyoming and Georgia, are demanding similar action. This over the ALA's defense of disputed books such as Gender Queer and The Bluest Eye. Last year, the ALA reported nearly 1,300 demands to censor library books and resources, a record high. We asked Deborah Caldwell-Stone, director of the ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom, what she thinks about states seeking to leave the organization. ALA is the oldest and largest professional organization for librarians, the library profession in this country. And... For back to 1876, our mission has always been nonpartisan promotion of great library service for every community, making sure that every person uh, has the opportunity 
have access to books, ideas, resources that will enrich their lives, um, promote uh, early literacy, uh, support businesses, whatever is needed uh, in the way of information by a community to promote the well-being of everyone in that community. Um, it's unfortunate there are a number of advocates who uh, in states claiming that they find that to be a problem. Um, uh, but we're not finding that there has been a mass exodus. Um, and often, as in Wyoming, there's been uh, uh, statements from the state library that they are not withdrawing, but instead intend to stay and work with ALA on perceived issues. I know your organization has been fighting against the increasing number of book bans around the nation. I wonder if you could tell me some of the books that people are looking to pull out of libraries or block access to. Is it all about LGBTQ plus and race or are there other things they're pulling? The books that are being targeted for removal by advocacy groups primarily are books dealing with the lives and experiences of LGBTQ persons persons of colors, black Americans. Um, we hear the words critical race theory a lot, um, that made up uh, phrase that targets books that question our history with racism here in the United States. We hear a lot of complaints about books being inappropriate for young people simply because they do represent uh, families that are headed by same-sex couples, for example. Books like Entangle Makes Three, Daddy's Roommate, Heather Has Two Mommies have all come under attack as being inappropriate when in fact they are, you know, written for and intended for young readers and are entirely appropriate for those who are interested in those topics. Um, we are, you know, have always been committed to fighting that kind of censorship for preserving each reader's individual choice, each family's individual choice in the books they want to read, and making sure that everyone can find books that reflect their lives and experiences on the shelves of their public library and their public school library. Unfortunately, um, we're seeing a rise in efforts to discredit this work. There's been efforts to attack libraries and librarians, uh, a real effort to degrade and depress deprofessionalize the work of librarians in curating collections that serve the needs of their communities. That's tracked with this effort to censor these books. Uh, and I don't think it's a coincidence, frankly, um, but we are determined to keep fighting for everyone's freedom to read in this country and the ability to have access to great library service in their community. I wonder what you say to parents and Others who say, well, you know, we should have control over what our kids are reading. We don't want our children to be sexualized. We don't want them to learn about, about Black history, you know. Do they have a point in any way, or do you think that's part of, I think, what you called an effort to diminish the public good, I read you said somewhere? Absolutely. I, when I talked about diminishing the public good, I was talking about the very idea that libraries shouldn't exist. Uh, and we're seeing that in some communities. There are individuals and advocacy groups in some communities that are so committed to censoring ideas, uh, censoring access to books that they'd rather have the library disappear altogether. And they're trying to defund the library, uh, encourage people to vote against levies that make sure that library service is available in that community. 
But what I would say to parents is, of course, you have a right to guide your child's reading, your child's reading. And librarians will not quarrel with that. Librarians are anxious to work with parents on guiding them to books that meet their values, their interests, um, and to make sure that they're matching books to the interests of that particular family. But where we disagree is that that choice of that particular parent of that particular family shouldn't dictate what books are available to everyone else in the community. Public libraries are just that. They're public entities. They are there to serve everyone in the community, every family in the community. And we live in an increasingly diverse society that reflects all kinds of backgrounds, experiences, identities. And each one of them is a taxpayer who deserves to find books on the shelf of the library that reflect their lives and experiences. And so we are fighting for the ability of the family that is headed by a same-sex couple to find picture books on the shelf for their children, as well as making sure that there are books for the parent who chooses not to have those books in their house. It really comes down to the simple uh, aphorism. You know, we believe firmly in the right of every parent to guide their child's reading, but only their child's reading. They should not be dictating everyone else's reading choices in the community. I spoke to a teacher recently who said she feels like this is, you know, Fahrenheit 451 coming to life. I mean, that we're going to get to the point of people literally burning books in the streets. Do you feel like it's going to be that extreme? I don't know if we're there yet. Uh, I actually have hope because we know that in many communities, um, individual citizens have come together to push back against the idea that governments should be in the business of censoring ideas and books that they want their public libraries to be open and making available a wide range of ideas so they can make up their own minds about what books they read, what thoughts they think about, the ideas that they and their uh, children uh, are exposed to. You know, um, I think of a community in Colorado where there was a real effort to censor a number of LGBTQ themed books. And that library board, rather than acceding to the demands to censor books, instead issued a statement in support of the freedom to read. We're seeing individuals stand up in communities where censorship is taking place, like in Louisiana, Louisiana Citizens Against Censorship, the Freedom Project in Texas, uh, Florida Freedom to Read in Florida, uh, speaking out against censorship. And all this gives me hope. We know that the vast majority of Americans do not support censorship. We've done polling, scientific polling, and 70% of all the respondents, voters, parents of all political persuasions say that they do not agree with the idea that the government should be telling people what to read or taking books away from readers, no matter what their age or their status. And we just need to all come together and make it clear to our elected officials that we do not want our libraries decimated, that libraries should be free and open to all kinds of ideas so that people can make up their own minds. That's the very promise of the First Amendment. And that's part of the public good I was speaking about earlier. Think about it. We're one of the few societies in this entire world that tries to make information and ideas freely available to its residents, to its citizens, 
in order to improve our lives so that we can be effective um, participants in the political process so that we can uh, in just simply have enriched lives reading fiction and having movies available to expand our experiences. And you know the fact that this is a public good that supports businesses, that supports communities. Um, you know, we risk losing all that when we accede to the idea that only certain books or ideas should be available to young people and to the community as a whole. You know, I think we need to cherish that. We need to come together to fight for that um, and to be aware of what's happening. You know, we have to remember that all library politics, all school politics are local. All this is happening at school boards and library boards. We need to attend those meetings. We need to raise our voices in support of the freedom to read and the right of students to learn from a broad set of ideas to protect the idea that we don't hide from our history, but we grapple with it and engage with it and come away better for that grappling with that idea. And uh, to support our librarians who are on the front lines, not only curating uh, you know, a great selection of books for you to read, but defending the very freedom to read um, with their policies, with their actions, with their voices when they engage with the public. Let me ask you one more brief question. Just how important is it for children to have access to a wide range of ideas? And what does that do, do you think, to their ability to learn and grow if they don't have that? Well, actually, research has been done by education professionals and academics in this area, and we find that educational outcomes are improved by having access to a broad range of ideas and diverse books. Um, And this goes along two axes. One is, of course, it improves critical thinking skills. It improves knowledge of the world. It better prepares young people who are preparing to go to college, enter the military, start careers to engage with all kinds of people successfully. But young people themselves who belong to marginalized communities who are black, gay, queer, transgender, also tell us that it improves their lives, that they find that they find greater success when they can find books that reflect their identity and their experiences, that they stay in school, that it helps them to avoid mental health issues, that they find greater success And so for both of those reasons, we should support the availability of diverse books in schools. You know, there's been so much claimed about books being inappropriate or harmful to young people, but I've never known a book to hurt a child or to damage anyone. Grappling with ideas is something we should all be prepared to do. And, you know, I think that we need to remember that books are tools for education and that we don't always have to agree with what a book says and that it's important to understand the world. And the book is a very important tool for finding that way. That's Deborah Caldwell-Stone, executive director of the Freedom to Read Foundation. Coming up, an educator looks back on the lives she has changed. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. In Maryland, high school girls are strutting their stuff on the field, but not as cheerleaders. WUSA-TV's Melissa Kim explains. With every snap, 
under the lights, these girls are writing history in Maryland. First down, boy. We can do anything that boys can do. Urbana senior linebacker McKenna Gottlinger says there was never doubt. I feel there's more to the fact that we all can support each other through something that can be greater than ourselves. McKenna is one of almost 400 girls who are part of the state's first ever varsity girls flag football team, an idea years in the making, thanks in part to the Baltimore Ravens. And for girls to get a chance to make a difference and be pioneers, as Coach Harbaugh said a couple weeks ago, in the sport is super important. For the decision makers at Frederick County Public Schools, it was a no-brainer. It means that we're doing something right. It means that, you know, hopefully we're going to help these young women become better leaders, you know, better moms in the future through this through the power of sport. Urbana head coach Nick Demolakis confident that he's building something bigger. Why is this not happening on Friday nights? Why is it boys football, you know? Um, and I see a future where, you know, girls flag football's out there and other girl female sports are out there playing Friday nights with packed stands. And that's going to happen. Not just on the gridiron. When we talk about a quarterback being in the pocket, we talk about standing tall and proud. But off of it, too. And it's about confidence, believing in yourself, and the positivity, um, fighting for what's right. And you're always going to be fighting for it. Last week, Urbana shut out Middletown 20 to nothing. But it's the numbers in the stands and on the sidelines that will make this game unforgettable. We did not expect as many people to come out and to support this, and being able to have the Ravens like sponsor us is just so exciting, and we love that. Now the younger girls will never know what it's like to not have football. Oh, how proud am I? I? I'm on cloud nine right now. <laughs> Frederick County Public School officials and the Ravens hoping that this is just the beginning and this will eventually grow into a statewide program. Most people would rather not spend time at a courthouse, but in Elk River, Minnesota, there's one where people are happy and getting tasty drinks. WCCO-TV's Susan Elizabeth Littlefield has more. Hi. It's typically a place people go to do business. How are you doing? Good. How about you? Good. Lately, it's become a place people go for a boost. Have a great day. You too. From barista Andrea and her friend, Aaliyah. When you serve coffee, you smile. I do smile. Why is that? This is joy. I just love making coffee to, for everyone. And the Government Center employees love it too. Perfect, as always. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Have a great Ken. day. It's a lot of fun. You know, greeting them in the morning, big smiles, you know, and check on how they're doing for the day. And yep, depending on my routine. So Andrea's just got such a gentle heart, and she actually learns, uh, those of us who are frequent customers, she learns our favorite drinks. And so we come down, she's like, you want your chai tea latte today? And I'm like, yeah, but make it dirty. Andrea and her lattes have only been around here a few months. It's a new program with Options, Inc., a group that works to give jobs to people of all abilities. And the new concept, Blackbird Coffee, took there off right away. And just the uh, success that can be had by hiring anybody, especially those with a disability, um, is, is critical for people to see. Americano? Thanks, Andrew. You're welcome. Have a good day. Sometimes we can segment our population, whether it's elderly or those with disabilities, and, and we kind of put them away. And to see them fully functioning and to see us fully functioning with that, that community, I think is super healthy and a healthy and happy environment it is. Working here, has it made you proud of yourself? Yes, it does. I love it. It makes me feel happy, wonderful, joyful, 
And I love working with all the different people who come. And her work is a welcomed distraction. I love it. It's a dream come true. You've seen those ads about making your go easier. There's a challenge, though. What if you can't find the tools that you need? Gastroenterologists and suppliers say a run on laxatives is making popular brands like Miralax and Glycolax difficult to find. Behind it, the Wall Street Journal reports an aging population, the fact that most Americans don't eat enough fibrous foods, and a surge in travel and hybrid work schedules are also leading to irregularity. Some are even treating laxatives like a budget Ozempic to lose weight. One analytics company says searches for laxatives on Amazon have more than tripled in the last year. Dow Chemical is building new factories, in part, to boost production. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. We have a heads up for those out there pairing their smartphones with their cars. The Mozilla Foundation, an internet privacy watchdog, says it checked out 25 auto brands and found that most were selling info to third parties. It says Nissan has the most creepy, scary, messed up privacy policy it had ever read. Finally, the tale of a North Carolina teacher who has dedicated nearly 70 years to her profession and says students had better be ready for some hard work in her classroom. WWAY-TV's Emily Andrews tells us she has no plans to slow down. In Tabor City at South Columbus High School, longtime teacher Everleen Davis is marking yet another year off of her academic calendar. I have touched the lives of many, many students. Davis started teaching in 1956 and hasn't stopped since. As the decades have passed, Davis has taught a variety of students in a variety of circumstances as the world has changed around her. Davis says all of her teaching experience has been in Tabor City. For me, most of the time, with the parents, the grandparents, and sometimes the great-grandparents. Douglas High School is where she got her start during segregation. When the schools were integrated, she relocated to Tabor City High School and now South Columbus High School, where she teaches family and consumer sciences. She says this is not her job, but her passion. She takes pride in educating children to become successful adults. I'm so happy to know that I taught something in my class, and you learned something in my class that has contributed to the success of your job. That means a lot to me, very much so, very much so. Davis says she roots for all children who have sat in a desk of hers, but don't let her age fool you. She's quick to let you know she still knows how to command a classroom. Those grades got to get up in, in this classroom here if you plan to pass this course. So they, they work, I work them hard now. I, 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 was, I was trained hard, I guess. Davis says people often ask her age, and she has a ready response. I am using the phrase that I am a very seasoned senior citizen in education as well as other areas. Davis says as long as her health allows it, she will continue to live out her passion as a teacher. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to weekendroundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Sarah Fishman is a technical supervisor, and Alan Peng provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert, and I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts.